Welcome to the world of digital Welcome, welcome. This is Ken, and this is another podcast story, guys. Welcome, welcome to this one. This one is called Robin Hood. And uh, let's kick off by starting with the usual disclaimer. All parts, none of this podcast story may or may not be true. It is up to you, the loyal listener, to decide whether or not you think any of it is true, all of it, some of it, whatever. Any comments you've got, put them in the comment section on the YouTube video that is going to go up on the Ken channel. And uh, let's just uh, disclaim this as well and say that all characters are fictional unless stated otherwise. All situations are fictional unless stated otherwise. Okay, so this one is called Robin Hood. And uh, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing this one to you by popular demand. Shall I call it popular demand? I don't know really, but you know. Let's call it popular demand. Some people wanted to hear this <laughs> because some people don't know what happened. And, uh, you know, some people have long memories and they occasionally talk to you and they say, Oi, mate, um, do you remember when this happened? What about, you know, what about doing a podcast story and telling us what actually happened <laughs> as opposed to your version of it, which uh, is usually not exactly similar. Okay, so let's go back, right? And I'm going to start by saying, if you've never heard a podcast story before, go back, listen to the other podcast stories. You will understand where I came from, where this series came from, and what we're talking about, you know, because, I mean, we are we are going back to the 80s. We're going back to the 80s Coventry, in fact, when I was a young man on the fringes of being a wannabe gangster uh, fag end gangster as they used to call us and uh you know we we weren't you know we weren't the boys if you know what i mean but we were out there we were we were the guys that drove the cars we were the guys that were the lookouts we were the guys that uh had the backroom roles and um you know if people needed uh a show of strength then they knew that they could phone us and we would be there along with uh, my day job, which was repossessing cars. Uh, that bit is actually true, by the way. <laughs> that that bit. Um, I'm not going to confirm anything else, though. will get me in too much trouble. Okay, so this one. God, we're going to go back to 1988. A lot of you weren't even born in 1988. I was 23. Now, at 23, I'd become... A little bit of a figure in my sort of circles and the people I hung around with and the you know I gained some respect by the time I was 23 and that was never an easy thing to do especially amongst the family but um, and by family I don't mean my family I mean the family that ran Coventry at that time and you know people started to know my name um, people would say hello to me had a good reputation you know, they knew that they could rely on me for a favour, that I was predominantly a nice guy uh, and I wasn't violent. I didn't get angry with people. I didn't pick fights. I would, you know, help old ladies across the road. But yeah, I was doing loads of illegal shit all the time, you know, uh, taking cars to order and, you know, occasionally turning up somewhere where there was a show of strength needed with a six hours or nine mil in my pocket. You know, th these things, these things happened. 
So I was, I, I, I would count myself as being a nice guy. So for me, 80, 88 became a fantastic year, a, a real kind of milestone year. I drove a really nice car. I had an uh, Audi and it was a Quattro and it was my car. It was legit. One of the few cars I had that was. <clears throat> it, um, it was all decked out with the Quattro stickers and everything else. The car was absolutely gorgeous and um, I loved it. It was taxed. It was MOT'd. I had insurance for the car. I had a driving license. <laughs> it was absolutely beautiful. And I loved that car. I, I Almost to the extent where I became obsessed with it because I used to get it cleaned about once a week. And that's just obsession, you know. Get dirt on it or a bird shits on it and you're out there with the rag cleaning it, you know. So I was... I'd kind of earned my wings, you know. I'd done enough work around my own circle for people to know me to be able to rely on me and I'd done enough work for the family to know that they could respect me and they knew that I wouldn't bottle it and they knew that I wouldn't walk away from a situation and I knew what the risks were and that kind of got me a lot of brownie points in those days so in 1988 man things were really really cooking they would give me regular work. I mean, whether or not it was babysitting work, whether or not they might send me down somewhere with 10 cars to deliver them to a port. They even trusted me to collect money. And that was very rare. There were very few people allowed to collect money. I mean, you know, quite often I didn't know how much it was. It'd be, it'd be in uh, some sort of a briefcase or something, but, and it'd probably be locked. So, I never counted the money. I never, you know, looked at the money. If I was told, collect the briefcase, I'd collect the briefcase. If I was told to look in the briefcase, I'd look in the briefcase. You know, there were all of these things. Now, I, there were occasions when shit happened. I mean, let's go story within a story, right? I was sent over to Harwich uh, and there were five cars and there were six of us because one of us was driving a minibus. Uh, to bring us back. So we took these five cars over to Harwich. Just outside Harwich, we met our contact. We went into Harwich in the docks. He got us through the dock gate. We went over to this um, place where there were loads of these containers. And that's where the cars were going to go. They were going into the containers. They were off to somewhere. And these were, you know, there were some nice cars. <laughs> there, were, there were Jags and, you know, Beamers and Mercs. There were some nice cars. And... Uh, our job was to do that. And, and my job <clears throat> as being the sort of coordinator of this was to collect the money. Now, um, what I was told to do was collect, uh, I, I can't remember how much it was now. Was it 25 grand? I can't remember. But it, anyway, it was a fair amount of dosh. And we delivered the cars, we shook hands, we did the biz, he handed over the money, I went to open the case and the bloke went, what are you doing? I said, I've been instructed to own the case, mate. He said, what, you, you fuckers don't, don't trust us? All the business I've done with the family and they, they don't fucking trust me. No, it's nothing personal, mate. I'm just under instruction to open the briefcase. If you want to make a phone call and have a row with the family over it, that's up to you. I'm just going to do as I'm told. So anyway, this guy got really, really over the top about it. And I was thinking, this ain't right. 
So I looked at the guys that I was with. And, you know, as I said, there were six of us. And there was about maybe seven or eight of them uh, sort of stood around ready to take the cars. And uh, I said to the bloke, mate, I'm going to open this briefcase. Now, it's either going to happen with your cooperation or without your cooperation, but the briefcase is going to get opened. And the bloke went, in case you hadn't noticed, mate, there's more of us than there are of you. And I looked backwards at the boys and each one of them reached into the, <laughs> reached into the back of their belts and pulled out a piece and started pointing it at these guys. And the bloke went, whoa, 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 enough, enough, enough. And uh, I said to him, are you sure that's the briefcase you want to give me? Do you want me? I'm going to open the briefcase. Are you sure that's the briefcase you want me to open? And he went, do you mind if I just check it first? <laughs> well, well, he, he took the briefcase into the porter cabin and he was gone about a minute and he came back out and he said, here you go, feel free. <laughs> open the briefcase. And sure enough, there was the money in the briefcase. I don't know what was in the briefcase before he took it back to the porter cabin but I do know it wasn't 25 grand, <laughs> whatever it was, or it may well have been ucky money. I'm really not sure. But the family got to hear about that because uh, our contact down there in Harwich was the family's contact. And he told them. And the family basically, you know, told these guys that they'd done this bit of business with. They wouldn't be working with them again. And uh, they would make it known that they were bent. And, you know, no honour you know, and all the rest of it. So anyway, but I, I got much kudos for that. Much kudos. I can't remember how much that was now. Did we get, I mean, you've got to bear in mind, this was 1988, you know, that was a lot of money back then. <laughs> you could, 1988, you could buy a house for 35 grand, you know? So it was a lot of dosh. So, you know, and we did, we did well out of it. I mean, we got, you know, 1500 quid between us lot. So, yeah, weren't too bad. Weren't too bad. Anyway, uh, so chewing gum has been popped in, by the way. I do this occasionally. So, you know, the family the family got a little bit of respect going on for me. And they knew I wouldn't shy away from it if it happened. We've been in, I mean, if you go back over a few of the podcasts, we've been in situations where, you know, I'd been fired at, you know. I'd, I'd been fired at uh, with... Um, with uh, pistols, I'd been fired out with a shotgun. You know, shit had happened to me and I hadn't bottled it. I'd stood my ground. And I always had an attitude that, you know, this is the life we lead and we get rewards from it. If we, there's a price to pay for the life we lead and that is the gamble. And we, we gamble every day with what we do. We gamble every single day. And if we lose one day, We've been lucky so far, but if we lose one day, we lose. And some of us did lose, and some of us paid the ultimate price. As, you know, if you go back on some of the podcasts, you'll find out. So, let's go back to Robin Hood. Okay. Uh, I had a regular team uh, with me that would work, and there were probably about 10 of us. Uh, another six on the fringes. Now, the six had regular jobs. The 10 didn't have regular jobs. This is what they did. This is what we did for a living. And the other six had regular jobs or part-time jobs or worked for, you know, their own families. And I mean, one of them was a butcher. Um, you know, and we used to joke that, you know, 
all we needed was a baker and a candlestick maker and we'd have a set <laughs> but uh so th there were maybe 16 of us that we could call on if we needed it and we did occasionally i mean the weekend work the boys the the six absolutely loved it the weekend work because i mean it was brilliant for them they could earn like 200 300 pound a day sometimes 500 pound a day and uh you know for the guys the 10 of us we only worked when the work was there if we had some something coming up at the weekend we might not work again till the wednesday or the thursday and then you know as long as we have money in our pockets we were happy bunnies all right it's as simple as that we were happy bunnies so let's go back to robin hood we were in my flat and we'd all been out we'd had a drink and we'd all come back to the flat and it was probably around about two o'clock in the morning two o'clock in the morning my phone rang and i'm thinking what the fuck so i went over grabbed my phone thought two o'clock in the morning it's never a good thing that your phone's ringing <coughs> And um, it was basically, it was a spin-off member of the family. And you could put him perhaps, if you were to rank the families, you'd have the family and the family members. Each family member who were, who were working for the family would have maybe six deputies working for them. And those six would then have teams of people that were doing shit whether or not they were robbing cars, robbing banks, they were doing any other scams they were doing, I mean, the prostitution that they ran, all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, and each would have a different area of the city. So I guess it, it would be unusual for me to get any sort of contact with any member of the actual family. I The best I could probably do would be contact with um, one of the family's deputies. This call, however, was slightly different because this was a member of the family. And I just looked and I probably went white and kind of looked at the boys and thought, fuck. And he said to me, Ken Burton? I said, yeah. He said, can you, how quickly can you put your team together? I said, well, they're not exactly my team. But he said, fucking hell, Ken, just how quickly can you put your boys together? I said, 10 tomorrow morning. I said, if it's tomorrow night, you can add another six. And he just said, take your 10, meet me at warehouse, whatever, whatever. Won't give you away in the name. And be there at nine o'clock, sober. And I went, okay, uh, how do you want us? Geared, dirty job, clean job suited booted what and he said i don't give a fuck just be there at nine o'clock and you'll be briefed and then he put the phone down and i just looked at the boys and went fuck and one of the boys went who was that and i told him and he went fuck <laughs> he said you ever spoke to him before no but he fucking knows who i am bloody hell so what do you think then, boys? And the boys went, I think we need to stop drinking. <laughs> and we did. And we started um, getting ourselves cleared up. And 
we all got some shy and at eight o'clock the following morning we all got up threw on jeans and uh you know we didn't know whether or not we were we were supposed to be tooled or not so the boys everyone kept their own peace in their own place i mean i i had a safe in my flat so i kept my piece in there dave's was in there and craig's was in there because they didn't have a safe place to keep theirs all the other boys had their own guns in their own locations so we couldn't get geared we had to uh we would have had to do a tour of the houses to get geared so we thought well fuck it let's go and uh there were i think there was only about eight of us and two were going to meet us there so anyway off we trotted and uh took two cars away we went we got to the warehouse entrance which was a normal everyday had you have seen this place you would have just thought that is a absolute normal business place there's a a guy in a silly security uniform on the gate with a barrier and uh basically you talk to him you get in so we pulled up at the barrier waved he opened the gate we went in and we pulled sort of around the side and slightly to the back you know where we would always have to park um quite often it would be the case that if we were bringing something to them or something the big shutters would open and we'd go through there but if it's just us we park around the back well to my surprise there was no space around the back and me and the boys looking at each other going, what the fuck, you know? He didn't, I mean, there was no way he would have kept like 30 bent cars, you know, in in one of his, or even around one of his warehouses, in one of his warehouses, maybe. But no way was there going to be like bent cars around one of the warehouses. So, and I recognised a couple of the cars. And uh, <clears throat> we had to park up and block a few people in. We went to the back door and uh, we knocked on the back door and door opened. We were looked at by somebody I recognised, guy that worked for the family. He was suited, booted and geared. And he then let us into the door that was behind him because it was a little light opening. And there was the warehouse. Now the warehouse was, as you see any warehouse, think of an empty warehouse completely empty and this thing could have maybe you could have put size wise maybe 50 cars in this thing and it had a porter cabin one end with another porter cabin on the top of it and those were the offices well there were no cars in there and there were no racks of shelving or anything like that there were a few boxes dotted around what there was was about 60 people most of which I knew, most of which I recognised. From old Alfie and his guys that had worked for the family since they were, like, kids, to, you know, up-and-coming youngsters that were guys that were under our level. And for me, it was a strange mix. And for the for the boys that I was with, it was a strange mix because you didn't usually... I mean, the, the boys at the very lowest level of anything would do the fetching and carrying. So if there was a warehouse that was being robbed, those boys would be the guys that transported the goods from one lorry to another, right? Um, but the sort of higher end, the guys that were well above me, you know, uh, especially Alfie and his people they would be the sort of guys that would be in suits doing 
close protection work, for instance, or, you know, uh, looking after someone who's going to a particularly dodgy meeting or, or you, know, you know, that sort of stuff. So on the one hand, we had all the boys that were well above my level. And then on the other, all the boys that were new to the business and were at the lowest level of, you know, anything you could get. You would never normally get all those guys in the same room. And it just occurred to me, only for a second, but it occurred to me, is this a fucking setup? Are we going to get, you know, 5 in here en masse and we're all going to get nicked? <laughs> because if we are, I'm fucking glad I ain't got my gun on me. <laughs> so, so anyway, there we were. Out of the office comes uh, a member of the family who is very high up. Now, if you think that at the, the very top of the family was the mother and father, okay? And then there were four sons and a couple of daughters, but they didn't really get involved. There was four sons and the sons were about in their 50s back in those days. And uh, both parents were still alive. But the four sons you never spoke to, never. And then there were cousins. You would speak to cousins or maybe on a very odd occasion. And it happened to be one of the brothers that had phoned me. So four brothers come out on this balcony where the office is on the top of this pool cabin. And uh, they stood there and one of them just put his hand up as if to say quiet. And the place went fucking silent. Not a pin, not a fart. And he just looked at his brother and his brother went, thank you all for coming. We have a situation now, it's not a major situation as far as the family are concerned. It's about some money that's gone missing. And I want to stress to you, it's not about the money. We are not desperate for the money that's gone missing. I don't want you thinking that. I don't want you thinking that at all. It's not about that. It's about reputation. It's about what's right. It's about fair play and somebody has not been fair and I must admit I thought fuck me if that person's in the room now they are going to get every piece of them torn off I mean starting at the fingers and working the way up and they are going to get hacked but he went on and he told us about Ron he said the person who's misplaced our money you all know it's Ron. And we all thought, Ron. <laughs> Do we know a Ron? And then we thought, oh, fuck, Ron. He was one of the brother's drivers. He drove one of the brothers around. Fucking hell, he is well up. And he's gone missing? And we thought, fucking hell, somebody's grabbed him. Somebody's grabbed him with some dosh. And we're going to, you know, go and do a rescue mission. All the rest. And he went on. My mind is doing 10 to the dozen. I don't know which way this is going. But he went on to explain to us. Ron was trusted to go to Southampton. He was meant to be picking up a case. That case was collected. They confirmed that. Ron had taken one of the staff cars. So he'd taken one of the family's cars. That car is still in Southampton. 
So Ron disappeared in and around Southampton. And we're looking at each other thinking, fucking hell. And he said, the thing is, we assumed that this was some sort of takedown. We were ready to deploy for a takedown. We were going to find every snot crook fucking wank in Southampton and shake him until his dick fell off. But that was not the scenario. What we found out subsequently is that Ron paid cash for a car at a dealership not very far away from where he dropped off our car and then disappeared. And we all looked at each other and went, fucking hell. You are kidding me. You are kidding me. That is like, that's a death sentence. It's a death sentence. And we were just waiting for, for the announcement. We were just waiting for, if any of you see him, please rip his fucking head off. But we didn't get that. What we got was this. The family went on to tell us this was another brother, that they'd done all their investigations, they got everybody that they know on the case, they were trying to work things out, they'd got people in the nick who had CCTV they could access, there was CCTV at service stations they could access, and they had people everywhere, literally everywhere. Now, it, it, the, the whole thing had happened a week before that meeting, a week before we ended up in the warehouse, but everyone had kept silent about it until they got a lead as to where he could possibly be, possibly be. And the family member went on to tell us that the car came off the motorway and was abandoned in Nottingham. But another car was purchased in Nottingham by a guy who meets Ron's description. So it's not the case that this is some sort of takedown. One of our own has turned thief and has walked off with the money. And then he went on again to tell us, it's not about the money. No one is desperate for the money. This is about honor. It's about loyalty. It's about respect. So, the three brothers went off. The last brother stayed on the, on the balcony and said, okay, this is what's going to happen. My guys are going to come and see you. We're going to break you into your teams. We are going to do Nottingham and every fucking surrounding area. We've got and we've chested CCTV all around Nottingham CCTV wasn't that big in those days you couldn't I mean you could drive down the street without being seen by CCTV not like these days but they had checked all the motorways they had checked they checked everywhere and everyone had been looking out for this car their contacts in Nottingham had looked out and you know no one no one had found this second car so that's what we were looking for the second car and what he told us was we were going to be dividing it into teams. We were going to be expensed to go to every 
B&B, small hotel, medium hotel, garage, workshop, everywhere that we could find within a certain area. And the whole of Nottingham and surrounding areas had been divided up into 23 different zones. And each team, each team was going to be given a zone. We were also told money is no object. We're going to put you there until we find him. So be aware that you might be away from your families and your loved ones for a little while. And then that was it. He went back into the office. We all started to chat amongst ourselves. There was a load of people walking around with coffees. There was that <laughs> everyone was going on about it. Everyone's going, I can't believe it. Ron was such a good bloke, such a good bloke. Now I knew a bloke uh, who was there and we called him Alfie. It wasn't his name, but we called him Alfie after the film. And uh, Alfie, he was definitely higher echelons. I mean, he was he was one of my mentors, you know, one of my mentors. He, he was the sort of guy I looked up to as a kid. He was the sort of guy I really wanted to emulate because he'd made it. As far as the family were concerned, he could do no wrong. He called, he had so many favours owed to him that when he dipped out, retired, he could make a phone call and have somebody killed. You know, it's simple as that. No questions, have him killed. He could do that. He, he had that level of power. And Alfie came over to speak to us. And he said, so what do you think? I said, well, I didn't really know the bloke. And Alfie said, I did. And not only that, but I've known him for 15 years. And he's the straightest fucking die I've ever met. I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. This ain't right. This ain't fucking right. And that kind of stuck in my head. Because I, I, I really, really trusted Alfie. And I'm thinking, well, if Alfie thinks he's a good one, and Alfie's a good judge of character, he's been in this business a long time. What the hell has happened to this guy? What the hell has happened to this Ron bloke? Now, I'd seen him. I'd, I'd seen him driving cars. I knew what he looked like. Had I ever spoken to him? I don't think I'd ever spoken to the, to the bloke. But I certainly knew what he looked like. Within half an hour, three quarters of an hour, load of uh, deputies from the family came down, started handing out bits of paper. And the bit of paper that we got handed had my name on it. And I'm thinking, for fuck's sake, I'm, I'm not the leader of these guys. Um, we're just asked to do it. There is no leader of our group. We're just boys together. But it had my name on it. And I hated it when that happened. It happened quite a lot. People just assume that if you get a group of guys, there's one guy who runs it, you know. And it wasn't the case. So anyway, we, uh, we by that time, had regrouped. We were 10. And we were given our zone. And uh, we were told it had to happen the following day. We needed to be in a hotel the following day and booked in and then checking out every B&B garage and everything in the area, go and work it out. So anyway, we all stuck around. Everyone seemed to be happy with what they were doing. Each team was given two grand for expenses. And 
Away we went, back to our cars and drove off. And our lot, we all went back to my flat. Well, we're talking amongst ourselves, working out how we're going to do it. I divvied up the expenses and, you know, we were going to split our ten up and, uh, you know, and just do basically two teams of five and just go and divide our area up. So we're doing everything, you know, coming in from both angles. The reason why we were doing five is we didn't know what we were going to face at the other end. If if Ron had turned and he was with another crew or whatever, or with some crooks, then I don't know. Chances are, you know, you don't want to you don't want to come across a whole bunch of guys that are likely to be tooled up when there's just two of you. You know what I mean? So we divided. We went two groups of five, and uh, following day off we went. We were suited, booted. We'd had all the actually it was quite funny because the, the night before uh, we were in my flat talking about it and the girls were around because there was a couple of girls looking after my flat while I was gone looking after the cat and that and um, one of them was saying you know what How, what are you guys wearing tomorrow and uh, I said oh, we all, we're all going like smart but you know suited but no tie and she said all right, if you're putting your suits on, for fuck's sake, shave and have a haircut. I said, well, we're leaving in the morning. I said, well, like, don't give a shit. Just <laughs> So anyway, the girls cut her hair that night. And uh, one of the boys that was with us, he, his hair was just awful. I mean, it really, it was so greasy and disgusting. He never washed his hair. He looked like a tramp. He never washed his hair unless he went swimming. And, you know, he just looked terrible. So anyway, one of the girls got the trimmers out and told him, trust her, close your eyes. <laughs> she fucking shaved it. <laughs> and she she said, that, oh, no, it's all right, it's all right. And he looked at it and he, he couldn't believe it. And the thing is, because he, he got, it was summer, and he, he got kind of dark darkish skin anyway. When she shaved his head, she only left about, I don't know, maybe two mil in his hair. His head was white. <laughs> he stuck out like a sore thumb. He looked like a lamppost. It was brilliant. Anyway, so we all had a haircut. We all got geared. We all got sorted with our weapons. And if you'd have come around my flat that night, fuck's sake, we're all sitting around on the floor and on the table, the dining room table, cloths, tea towels laid out, and we're all cleaning our guns. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, following morning off we went now it's only an hour right it's only an hour to nottingham so it's not really that bad and uh we sure enough went to our area i won't tell you what this area is for obvious reasons and away we were checked in to the agreed bnb that we were going to check into lovely lady lovely lady and uh <clears throat> started doing a tour um you know first day I mean, we were there by 10. We were unpacked and ready to rock and roll by 11. I guess, you know, we'd by about half 11, we'd started traveling around to the B&Bs. We had a, a list and uh, we'd basically got a list of every B&B that we had to go and do. But there were some that weren't on the list. So we were doing street by street. And, and not only that, but we were also looking for this car. Now, the car we were looking for was a Mark III Escort and uh, it was like 
Everyone had a Mark III Escort. It was a 1.6L. It wasn't anything. It was just a Mark III shitty blue Escort. There must have been a oh, 100,000 of those things in Nottingham. They were everywhere. One of the most common cars you'd ever see because the guy next door would buy one. And, you know, everyone bought this Mark III Escort. Anyway, we were checking every Mark III Escort. We couldn't rely on whether or not the plates had been changed. So, you know, we're looking everywhere. And uh, every Mark III Escort we came across, we'd stop, get out, take a look at it. And they, they were putting VIN numbers on the glass in those days, etching. And uh, I know they do it now by standard, but it had only just come in then. And we were checking VINs on stuff, and some people were coming out and go, what are you looking at my car for? I said, oh, it's all right, mate, it's all right. And, like, we were on our travels. Well, we were there for, what, four days? four days probably and not a snifter and we were doing this you know we'd we'd start our searches at nine in the morning and we'd finish like i mean we'd come back or we'd, we'd touch base at lunch decide we were going to have lunch and then touch base decide which chip we were going to or whatever and then uh what we do is we'd go out again and we'd be there till 10 o'clock so we weren't taking the piss we were really out there really looking and we wanted to be the ones who found him to be honest i mean it we knew without anybody telling us there was going to be a big bonus in this <laughs> whoever found the guy and brought him back in one piece there was going to be a big bonus especially if we brought the money back god if we brought the money back i don't know there were rumors about how much it was <clears throat> some people said it was a hundred thousand some people said it was two hundred thousand i don't know but you know, nobody, I don't think anybody really knew. They were just guessing. So we're checking out and we're doing B&B to B&B to B&B. And then we were driving down one street and we saw 1.3, uh, sorry, 1.6L shitty Mark III Escort. And by this time, we'd become quite weary. And it was down the side of somebody's house. So, like, if you, if you imagine all of these terraced houses and then, like, four houses together and then there'd be one house that's a semi-detached. It was on a semi-detached house and it was on the side, on the drive, almost tucked away. So, anyway, we'd just got lunch and we were grabbing sandwiches and we'd just driven off and decided where we were going to park to eat our sandwiches when we saw this. So, we went, stop, stop, hold on, hold on. And I went, all right, you you check it out. I'll go I'll go and uh I'll go and check the car out. So I went over to check the car out and walked up this guy's drive and looked at the number and it didn't have one. And the reason why it didn't have one is because it had been etched out. And that sparked my interest. Glass etching is done with acid, okay? And what they do is they lay on a number that's basically been imp imp impregnated. <laughs> it's not impregnated. It's been embossed with a number and they put it on in the factory and that's how it etches. And what people used to do, especially, I mean, it was quite legitimate because if you bought a windscreen, second-hand windscreen, you'd have to etch out the number and uh, you could get a strip, an acid strip to put on and it would etch the number out. So I had a look at that and the windscreen had been etched out i thought that's interesting <clears throat> walked round to the uh hatchback and that number had been etched out 
That's even more interesting. Looked inside the car and it was pristine. I mean, it looked like like it had just literally been spit and polished. Now, that's quite common. It's quite common. A lot of older people look after their cars more than they actually drive them. And that's probably a good thing. But it was definitely worth arousing my suspicion. So anyway, the boys are at the front and they're blocking the road. And behind them, there's a... Oh, for fuck's sake. So, Ken, come on, come on. And I just thought I went, okay. I went back to our car and we drove off. Now, there was something niggling in my mind about this car. And I just couldn't kind of get what it was. And I think it was, for me anyway, I think it was the cleanliness of the vehicle. The fact that it was so, so clean. And it had either just been cleaned inside out and polished. Or someone was maybe wearing gloves. There wasn't a mark on it. There wasn't a fingerprint on it. There wasn't there wasn't a fingerprint on the glass, on the chrome door handles, anywhere. Anywhere at all. There was nothing. And I don't know why, it just sort of tripped something in my head. But it was at the side of a terraced house. So how could that be him? How could that be anything to do with him? Anyway, we went back to, uh, well, we went to find somewhere to eat lunch. We did, we ate lunch. And um, we went touring. We had three or four other B&Bs, a couple of hotels to look at. And then, you know, about six o'clock, went back to uh, our B&B. And opposite that B&B was a pub. And we thought, right, fuck it. We'll go in there and we'll get a half a pint and uh, something to eat in the pub. So we did. We all zipped across there. Now, we're all kind of sitting around. And one of the boys said to me, you're not talking much. So are you. And I was like, I don't know, I'm just, that's just, I don't know, just don't sit right. So what don't sit right? I went, ah, forget it, forget it. Guys, I'm, I'm going to turn in, I'm going to get an early night. Um, I've got, you know, I just want to watch some TV, clear my head. So they went, all right, all right. I said, you going back out? I said, yeah, yeah, we're going back out. So they did, they went back out. Now it was about, from where we were, it was about a mile and a half to this street where I'd seen this car. And there was just, there was just something about it. So anyway, the boys had taken the cars. Uh, we'd only brought two cars with us. And well, two cars in for our team of five. And then there was another two cars for the other team of five. But our two cars... The boys had both gone out, or all the boys had gone out. So I had no car. So I thought, fuck it, I'll go and have a walk down there. And I'm taking a bit of a trip down, and the weather's turning, and it's dark, and it's getting a bit sort of shitty, Nottingham-ish weather. And I'm just thinking, oh, fuck this, I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I turned around, went back to the B&B. And slept following morning we had breakfast and uh we got in the cars and we went out 
we started to have a good look around usual stuff we still had more hotels on the list we still had more bnbs on the list and we certainly had more streets to cover so this was now day five so it was probably day six when the boys decided we've got to have a night off from this it's doing our heads in so what we'll do is we'll spend the day doing it and then come six o'clock we'll go and tie one on in that boozer across the road we'll bring in the other guys uh our other five and we'll go and have a good beer and we did we had you know a couple of pints a couple of bottles in my case i was posh <laughs> and uh anyway i said to one of the guys because i hadn't brought the quattro so i said to one of the guys give us your car keys a minute I just couldn't I couldn't handle it anymore. It was just in the back of my head and I couldn't handle it and it was doing me in. I just said, give us your car keys. And he gave me his car keys. And I took a little bit of a drive and parked outside this house. The car wasn't there, but then again, they did have a garage. So potentially the car could be in the garage. And whilst the wind and the rain and the miserable atmosphere of this place poured down on me. I waited. I sat and watched the rain hammering on the roof, pouring down the windscreen. And I just tried to contemplate why, why would this guy do such a thing? I mean, there had to be a reason for it. There had to be. And I don't like things that don't make sense. This guy was loyal. He was a man of honor. To all intents and purposes, he was the ideal guy. And yet he turned. Why? Why would anyone do that? And that's what I couldn't understand. And I waited there probably two hours. And then I was just about to leave when I saw him. And there he was. There was Ron putting the bins out of all things. He came out of the house and put the bin out. And he looked okay. I mean, he he looked fine. He wasn't being coerced. He wasn't... No one was holding his arm up his back. Nothing. And then he went back in. I think he probably sat there for about another 10, 15 minutes contemplating the next move I could see there was movement inside the house I could see it from the bay window and I thought I could just go knock on the door just go knock on the door and say why Ron why but he'd spook he would run I don't know if he was armed I didn't know anything 
so I went back to the B&B. I got changed and went over to the pub. The lads were having last orders and they went, where the fuck are you been? And I said to them, I found him. <laughs> you what? I said, I found him. That car the other day that I went to look at. That's the escort. He's in the house. Fuck here now. Did he see you? No. Jesus. Right. Okay. Let's go. Let's get, let's get geared and let's go and take him out and all that. So look, hold on, hold on. So what do you mean? Hold on. You know, this six days have been here. What do you want us to do? Hold on. Let's go and get him. Fuck's sake. He could leave at midnight. He could fuck off. I said, I just want to think about this just for a second. And they were saying, there's nothing to think about. For fuck's sake, Ken, there is nothing to think about. We're going now, we're going hard, and we get him out into a motor and away. I took a deep breath. I just nodded. We went back to the B&B to get geared. Within five minutes, everybody's ready. Everyone's outside and they're sitting in the cars and everyone is so hyped. The adrenaline is just pumping like you wouldn't believe. And I'm sitting there thinking, Jesus Christ, you know, I, I'm fine with this. I mean, I'm fine with this, but I'm still not gonna get an answer to the question, why? Why? Somebody has got to tell me why before I go in there and start pointing a gun at this guy, for Christ's sake. And everyone is just going, yeah, let's do this. Let's take this fucker down, Ken. Let's take him down. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, you know, and we, the cars drive and there's wheels spinning and we're going, boys, you don't need to do that, you know, just going quietly. We're going quietly. Let's suss it out. The front, the back, the lot. We pull up outside the house and the boys, I mean, for Christ's sake, you know, there's just, there's too much. There's just too much of it. Everyone is so pumped. Everyone is so hyped. We're in four cars. We're coming from two different directions down this street and then bang, screech of brakes, screech of tires and everyone for a mile radius knows exactly that we're there. And the boys leap, leap out of the cars and run towards the house. Some run to the back, some run to the front and it's just absolute chaos. There's no planning in this. It hasn't happened. And then it happens. Everything stops. Everybody stops. The noise came from inside the house. We know what it was. But so does everyone else. And we've got two choices. Do we stay? Do we confirm? Or do we leave before the police arrive? And we leave. And there's screeches of tires and more noise and we leave and go back to the B&B. We, we were in the living room of the bed and breakfast and there's people saying, what the fuck? What the fuck? The fact is that if these were my guys, I lost control of them. 
there was no planning in that. There wasn't anything. There was frustration that we'd been there so long and we hadn't got the results we were looking for. And then there was... Nothing. I... Uh... I rowed with the boys <clears throat> one of the few times it's ever happened. I called them names. They called me names. I shouted, I'm going to get some fucking air. And I slammed the door. And went for a walk. And I walked in the direction of the house. And when I got there, there were police cars, there were, there was an ambulance, there were crowds. And I said to the, this guy, what happened? I said, I don't know, some guy shot himself. And as they brought him out on a, uh, one of these gurney trolley things, I saw a woman stood at the door and uh, she just looked destroyed, absolutely destroyed. I asked who it was and the guy I was talking to was a neighbour and said, oh, I don't know, I think it's um, Claire's brother. Who's Claire? Did Ron have a sister? What the fuck? I went back to the B&B and slept. Following morning, the boys are all down there having breakfast and uh, we basically... They apologised, I apologised. And they said... You're right. We talked about it after you went out last night, and you're right. This should have been treated like an op. This should have been ran. Somebody should have had a plan. But the end result's the same. I said the end result is not the same. End result is a man's dead. Because he looked out of a fucking window and saw a whole group of guys heading towards his house or what turns out to be a house he was staying in. I didn't get the answer to the question. I found that quite annoying. We reported back and uh, by the time we reached Coventry again, I was summoned to go and see the, uh, the family and I did. And we went in, there was quite a few other people around. And I said, he did himself, he, he saw us coming and he did himself. And they said, yeah, we've confirmed it. It's him, he did do himself. And they said, good work, good work. And then they handed me an envelope with five grand in it. And I said, 
no problem. Thanks very much. And I went. I'm guessing uh, what happened next was there would have been some people turning up at the house trying to get the money. I couldn't, I mean, it wasn't any of my business. I couldn't shake it from my head. I spent the next week, 10 days, just thinking about it, just trying to work it out, just trying to make sense of it all. There was nothing to make sense of. Then I took another trip to Nottingham, which was a mistake. And again, I waited outside the house until I saw a woman coming out with a dog. And I got out of the car and started to follow her. She was Claire. She was the woman that was in the house. And I followed her to a park. And she let her dog go and she sat on a bench and I sat on the bench next to her. Started talking about the weather. More mundane things that people talk about. And she said, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not feeling up to conversation at the moment. I said, that's okay. And she said, we've had a death in the family. And I told her how sorry I was. And she said, and then there've been people at the door and she went, oh, I don't want to bother you with this. And I said, you should. You should bother me with it. At least another mind on the issue might help. It might just help to talk. And you never know, there might be something I can do to help you. And so she started to talk. And she told me one of the saddest things I'd ever heard in my life. Ron had been diagnosed with cancer and he'd only got a few months left. So he robbed the family's money so that he could give it to his sister. She was in a bad relationship, violent relationship. And while, whilst Ron was there, the husband had moved out. But of course, he'd be moving back in. Now Ron's gone. And she wanted the money to go and live with her cousin in Canada. And she wanted the money so she could buy a house 
so she could start a new life and she'd always been very close to her cousin before she emigrated and she didn't want to stay in this country anymore she wanted to go to Canada, Vancouver her cousin was doing well she could get her work she just needed state money she just needed to set up And then she told me about her gangster brother and how he'd come across 240,000 pounds. And uh, he wanted her to have it. And he didn't say where he got it from. But she didn't know where the money was. And the people calling at the door we're not exactly being very nice about it. But she genuinely didn't know where the money was. She didn't know that Ron had stolen the money. But suddenly it all made sense. Everything slotted into place. Ron's got cancer. He's got a few months to live. With that few months, he wanted to ensure his sister could get away, could start a new life. And there was my answer. And I felt less guilty about Ron, because he would have died anyway. But I felt very guilty for Claire, because we may have found the money. Ron could have told us where it was, what he'd done with it. Well, it went on for three hours, that conversation. And I took her for a coffee and the dog. <laughs> And uh, we talked there as well. She was all right, Claire. It's not often you, it's not often I click with somebody. But she was on my wavelength. And I think it's her vulnerability that perhaps attracted me to her. And I think it's vulnerability that made me do a lot of things that I did. I can't take people being in bad situations, especially when I'm able to do something about it. Well, the husband uh, was apparently going to move back in the following week. He'd moved somewhere up north uh, when she, when Ron kicked him out and he was moving back. And... Uh, I thought, well, that's one thing I can deal with. And I said to her, you know, it, there are things I can do to help. She said, what, what possibly could anyone do to help? I said, I could stop your husband moving back in. And she said, how will you do that? And I said, there you go, asking questions again. And she said, 
That is exactly what Ron used to say. And then she said, You fucking knew him. You fucking knew him. You're here for the money. I said, I'm not here for the money. But yeah, I did know him. <sighs> she was disgusted with me. Completely disgusted. Nearly as much as I was disgusted with myself. And I thought, okay, if I go back to Coventry and call in a few favours and raid my own account, I can probably get my hands on around about 30 grand. That'll certainly be enough to get it there. And at the same time, I can make sure her husband isn't a problem. So that's me making amends. So I got back to Coventry and I spent a few days there and got some money, called in some favours and me and a few of the boys went up to Nottingham. And we knocked on the door and sure enough, a fucking piece of lard stood in front of us with a fag in his gob and a can of beer in his hand and football on in the background. And he said, yeah. And we said, do you still have your cases with you? I said, what are you fucking talking about? I said, because you, you're going to need to pack them. You're leaving. Fuck off. And he went and shut the door. And we kicked through the door. And then we kicked through him a lot. We knew because Clara told us that he'd hit her more than once. That on one occasion, he bent her finger back until she did what she was told and broke her finger. We made sure that we repaid that favour. I don't think there was a finger left. I don't think there was much of him left. We'd taken a escort van with us and uh, after we finished kicking the seven shades of shit out of the, the bloke, we put him in the van and then we showed him some guns and we said, we are now in charge of Claire's safety together with a lot of other people. If you come back to Nottingham, we will kill you. Please do not take this as an idle threat and don't test us because we won't tell you twice. And then one of the boys drove him off. Not two of the boys actually drove him off towards the train station, which is where they were going to dump him. They did give him a wet flannel a wet towel so he could mop the blood off his face. But most of his injuries were body related anyway. I waited in the house. Claire wasn't there. She came back about half an hour later with the dog. And I put an envelope on the table and I said, that's about all I can get. And, uh, your husband, by the way, won't be back. 
and she just said, I thought you were here for the money. I said, no. And then she said, you and Ron were a lot alike. But I can't take your money. I said, you fucking can. You can take my money and you can get on a plane and you can at least make a start over there. She said, I can't take it. Well, we had a discussion for about half an hour. I left. Went back to Coventry. And then... Uh, I, d I didn't leave the money. She wouldn't take it. About two weeks later, I wanted to know if he was back. The husband. I didn't need the boys with me. So I took a trip back. She wasn't there. I went over to the park and sure enough she was sitting on a bench I stood watching her for a little while wondering whether or not I should go over she didn't look very happy she looked incredibly sad and I stood there for 10 minutes and then I popped over and I stood there in front of her and I said do you mind if I sit down and she wiped a tear away I didn't realise she'd been crying she said no, no, please sit down I said is he back she went no, no, no he's not back I said, why the tears? She said, because I'm going to miss my dog. So why are you going to miss your dog? She said, a parcel arrived. It had been halfway around the country, apparently, from one post office to another. But when I opened it, she said, it was full of cash. said I'm going to Canada and I don't want to leave my dog <laughs> how I didn't cry I don't know so do you want me to find him a good home and she cried again and then she just smiled The dog came back to her. She put the lead on the dog, handed me the lead and uh, kissed the dog on the nose. And then she started to walk off. She got about 10, 15 yards. She turned 
and mouths the words, thank you, with a bloody great big grin on her face. Good girl. Did it make up for what happened to Ron? No. But it was a happy ending all the same. <laughs> and we should all deserve a happy ending. Take it easy, guys. I'll see you on the dark side. <laughs>